We'll hear argument this morning first in case 1217, McBurney versus Young. Mr. Gupta. Thank you, and may it please the Court. All 50 states have public records laws. 47 of those states make access available to residents and non-residents on equal terms. Virginia, by contrast, enforces a discriminatory access policy. And because commercial requesters make up the vast majority of records requesters, out-of-state businesses bear the brunt of Virginia's policy. When, when was the first of those laws enacted? You know, I think it's in, I think it's in my adult li- lifetime that Florida was the first to enact a sunshine law. Is that, am I correct about That's that? That's right. All of these in laws in the 60s and, and the early 70s, yeah. the, the Virginia law was enacted in 1968. And we don't deny that. you say that's a fundamental, that's a fundamental right covered by a privileges and immunities clause, well, which nobody had until the 1960s. Well, to be clear, the modern transparency laws are new, but they sit on top of well-established common law rights to, to access that are based not on modern notions of transparency, but on the right to secure <coughs> property and other but basic those, those rights still exist in this state, don't they? Cannot you get uh, records of uh, deeds and uh, uh, what, whatever the common law would have covered? Well, it's true that, that Virginia's law exempts deeds from its freedom of information law, but if I understand their position correctly, uh, they would be entitled as a constitutional matter under their theory, to preclude uh, people from other states from accessing even deeds. Well, I'll, I'll ask them that. I didn't understand that to be their position, but, but I guess we can ask them. Well, my, my client, Mr. Hurlbert, is in the business of gathering property records for his clients. Now, it's true that in Virginia he could get the deed, but what he can't get and what he principally gathers for his clients are real estate tax assessment records. And those are a much richer storehouse of property-related information than simply the deed. And you can you explain that business a little more fully than you did in the brief. He's in the business of collecting records from all the states about tax assessments. That's right. And and he and he does that for a client who could very well ask himself. So what is the service that's being performed? Well, you know, he doesn't just do the routine request. The the, the large data companies are the ones who hire him, uh, and they. If there are routine requests, they can do them themselves, although if they're not based in Virginia, they would still have to hire a Virginian to do it. Um, but they bring him in when there's some flaw in the, the routine process where the, the state is being recalcitrant or the local official is being recalcitrant, and he's an expert in being able to gather these uh, these records and knowing the processes, knowing what he's allowed to do and what he's not all he, all he has to do is get somebody for, from Virginia to ask for him, right? Well, he could hire someone from Virginia to do that, but that's, you know, that's sort of precisely what the — Well, but the, you don't have to pay the person too much. He just has to write a letter saying, give me these documents, right? He would still have to hire someone, and that would be an increased cost. And Well, for, an incre- for, increased cost of, I don't know how much, a hundred bucks, right? Go write a letter, say you want these documents, and when they come to your house, give them to me. Yeah, for the large data companies, uh, you know, they will hire someone other than him to perform this service. Uh, they will, um, if you're talking about routine requests. But even, you know, even for them, if you're talking about a, re- a request that isn't routine, if he has to do something further to enforce the rights, he's going to have to do that in his own name, or the data company will have to hire someone other than him, someone based in Virginia, to do that for them. And, and then he will lose that business. So the lower you go down in the food chain of the data industry, the bigger the effect of Virginia's policy. How much, how much of an impact 
in fact, does it have on his business? I mean, there are 47 states who will provide this information. Well, for, for him, in the Virginia market, it completely forecloses him from doing uh, access, business in the Virginia market. And if other states were to have policies like this, he wouldn't be able to do business in those states as well. So if, if the focus is on him uh, and his business in Virginia, it completely cuts him off. If the focus is on, on what the effect is in the aggregate, on the market as a whole, because most uh, public records requests or commercial requests it's going to have uh, an effect on most uh, commercial requesters who are out of state. And, um, Mr. An Gupta, example- I, I understand that the, the reasoning of Virginia in not allowing out-of-state people to, to get these uh, FOIA requests is uh, the following, that the purpose of these, uh, these laws, and I remember it when the first ones were enacted, government in the sunshine, the purpose of it was not to enable people to get information, per se, it was to enable people to see how their government is working so that they could attend to any uh, malfeasance that is occurring in the process of government. It seems to me entirely in accord with that purpose of these laws to say it's only Virginia citizens who, who are concerned about the functioning of Virginia government and ought to be able to get whatever records uh, Virginia agencies have. What's, what's wrong with that? A few responses, um, Justice Scalia. Uh, First, um, transparency was one purpose, but as I said, these laws also carried forward the much more longstanding rights to access based on personal interests and property interests. Also, even at the time that these laws were enacted, if you don't need any personal or property interest under these laws, you can just, just out of curiosity, if if you're a Virginian at least in Virginia, even though you have no interest in the matter at all, you can ask the agency for records about this or that. It, it can't be based on, on the traditional property interest. It, it's based on the ability of the citizens of the state to find out what the, what the government of the state is up to. Even at the time that these laws were enacted in the, in the 60s, it was well understood that they were going to have a big commercial impact. The property records industry was in full swing by the end of the late 1970s. But the point century. is, the FOIA is tied to, as Justice Scalia said, uh, the citizens should know what their government is doing. And you don't have to give any reason at all if you are part of that political community. Now, Virginia doesn't allow people from out of state to vote. They're not part of Virginia's political community. So why isn't this uh, — if, if, you, if you're not part of the political community, then you don't fall under FOIA, which is uh, a peculiar statute, and then that everybody who is covered by it can get whatever they want. They don't have to give any reason for it. Right. Well, elections just simply don't work if you if you allow uh, non-citizens to participate in elections or if you can't wall off the state in that respect. But what the state can't say is simply because one purpose of this law is that we want to constitute ourselves as a political community, that we can exclude activities that have a big commercial effect. And, you know, when we're looking un- under the Dormant Commerce Clause or under the Privileges and Immunities Clause, this Court's cases have said repeatedly, you don't look to uncover the original legislative purpose. You look to whether there is discrimination, which there is here on its face, and you look to whether there's a, a discriminatory effect. Uh, one example of how this policy is the only thing that's be- necess- uh, Excuse me. Is, is, is the only thing that's necessary that the law affect a few people commercially? I mean, how how much — uh, how many of the requesters have to be engaged in some kind of commercial activity in order for your argument to work? 
Well, what this Court has said is that there is no de minimis exception uh, if there's discrimination against commerce. But here, what's going on is anything but de minimis. Virginia does not deny that the, the vast majority of the requesters are commercial requesters. The vast majority of out-of-state requesters are commercial requesters. There, the amicus brief supporting their side, the local government attorneys of Virginia amicus brief, at page 30, explains the way this policy, policy is being implemented, is that non-commercial requests are typically honored, but out-of-state requests by data miners uh, are being categorically denied under the policy. This, this, is not, this is not a regulation of commerce. It's a state practice that may have an incidental effect on commerce, and the incidental effect may be disproportionate, depending upon whether you're state or local. But it's not a regulation of commerce. That's, that was the Fourth Circuit's theory, and I think incidental can mean a few different things. And I think in, the, in their opinion, it, it does mean at least three different things. So maybe it would be helpful if I try to unpack that. If it means incidental um, in terms of the effect on my client's business, I think, as I've explained, it's anything but incidental. It completely forecloses him from the market. If it means incidental in terms of the, the aggregate effect of this statute, again, it, it's not incidental because the vast majority of, of affected parties under this policy are out-of-state commercial requesters, particularly data companies. And, you know, if it means uh, incidental compared to the purpose of the statute, uh, as I've said, transparency was one purpose of the modern FOIA laws, but they also subsumed and sit on top of all of the longstanding rights of public access that have been around since the, the, the first settlements in the United States, or before the United States, when in order to have a functioning property system, uh, we recognized that you've got to have records of who owns what, and, and those records have to be made available what to if, anyone in order to exercise property rights. What if the state of Virginia says as a policy, we want to help Virginia businesses, and so we're going to open a business training best practices institute uh, where you're going to learn how to be a better business person, but the only people who can come in are, are Virginia businesses. Right. Under your theory, because that will have an effect, an incidental effect, uh, on commerce in a way that's discriminatory, is, is that unconstitutional? I don't think so, and there are a couple of distinctions. Uh, first, um, that's not something that the state exclusively is able to provide. It's not like the courthouse or the public archives across the street or the road that runs between them that only the, the, the uh, state is able to provide. Anyone can provide a business training institute. So the state is just one player among many. Uh, also, uh, running that, that, a, that just goes to the extent of the impact, not 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 on the principle. And you say extent doesn't matter. You say there's no such thing as a de minimis exception. No. So to, that that explanation doesn't doesn't seem to me to hold water. Well, maybe I didn't explain it very well. To be clear, I think it's more than just a difference in degree. It's a difference in kind. These are fundamentally different when when you're talking about running the courthouse or running the public archives, nobody else can do that. Nobody else can collect, uh, you know, make tax assessments, collect those records, and keep the official public archive of those things. So what? So what? Except to the extent that that bears upon how much of an imposition this is upon interstate commerce. It seems to me that's the only relevance of that point. And and you dismiss that relevance. You say it doesn't matter how extensive the impact is. On, on interstate commerce. Well, to the extent that you, you think it, it does matter, I mean, that, that distinction doesn't matter in this case because the impact is, is, is great. Uh, the principal impact is an impact on out-of-state commerce. But uh, let me — Is that 
when you're talking about impact, is that a, a pike analysis? No. I, I think this — if you were in, in the Dormant Commerce Clause, this would be uh, the per se rule of invalidity. You have facial discrimination. The, the — Well, I thought if it was facial discrimination, you're not concerned about impact. That's right. It's not a question right. of talking about the effects on interstate commerce. That's the, uh, the you know, the Pike analysis. No, I mean, what this Court has said is that, that the, the first sort of first-tier scrutiny, the per se rule, is, is for cases where there's discrimination on its face or discrimination in effect. And then you've got this other category uh, for the, the Pike analysis where the State regulates even-handedly. What, what, what's your closest case in support of the proposition that this is impermissible as a discrimination against interstate commerce? What's your best case? Um, when you say this, you mean that, that public if, records if, access if, if is you, you, you are arguing, as, as one of your arguments here, that this is discriminatory as to, as to interstate commerce, as I understand your argument. What is the best case you have to support your position? What's the closest case? Well, I think if you're, if you're, if the question is about whether or not, um, records access is commerce, there's Reno versus Condon, this court's well, my, unanimous My question position. is, what's the best case you have for your argument? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this court's unanimous decision in Reno versus Condon held that, uh, because people buy public records and sell them in interstate commerce, that's indisputably interstate commerce. So, we, but we, that wasn't a discrimination. That wasn't a, that, that's, that's right. just, that goes to the question whether or not this is commerce. That, what is, what right. is your best case to show that this is discriminatory in violation of our precedents? Well, Virginia doesn't deny that there's discrimination on its face. So I take your question to be asking, um, you know, what about the commerce aspect? And, and Reno versus I, if I have to write that. the opinion, what case do I put down? I'm waiting. Yeah, I mean, you, okay, so you can also look to Camp's Newfound, um, which I think, you know, was much, much more attenuated to commerce. There you had a generally applicable law, a uh, property. Uh, if I only have law. time to read one case, or yeah. possibly two, <laughs> which would you like me to read? I think that's basically the question. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, there's no case that's, that's entirely on all fours. Okay, I assume you don't that's want why to you're any here. Uh, so, right, so, so, okay. So the Camp's Newfound case um, is, is a case where you had a generally applicable law. It was a property tax law. It exempted, uh, you know, charities that served uh, primarily in-state residents. It was — there's no evidence uh, that, that the State of Maine intended that to be, uh, you know, a discrimination against commerce. It obviously swept more broadly and affected both commerce and non-commerce. Uh, but this Court said that, you know, you had facial discrimination against commerce because there were people operating these summer camps, and they were treated differently. Uh, Look at those. But I think the Commerce Clause basically has as its objective, insofar as it's dormant, to prevent a legislature or decision-maker within its state discriminating in favor of their own state producers. Right. Now, it's pretty hard for me to put this case into that mold. Well, I mean, you know, one, one piece of evidence, Justice Breyer, is the media exception to the Virginia statute. It, it, this, this makes it clear that Virginia was aware that people who were requesting information for commercial purposes um, were going to use this statute, and they exempted the Just press. Virginia media, though, isn't it? Isn't it only that, media that uh, — That's right, uh, Justice Scalia. It, it, well, exists or broadcast into Virginia. That's right. So it's, so it's that's consistent with their purpose, uh, that this statute is meant to assure uh, good — Honest government in Virginia. Well, it's, this is a statute. It's a pretty unusual statute that discriminates among newspapers. So it says, if it does, but the I had exactly the same question for both parts of your argument. 
uh, that what it's there, I, am I right in thinking that anyone can get any information, anyone in any state can get any information that pertains to him or her? Uh, is that right or not? Right? There's a separate Virginia Is that right or not? Yes, right? there's a separate right. okay. Virginia Okay, that's what I wanted to know, whether it's separate or not. Anyone from Alaska to Hawaii can get any information that pertains to him or her. Second, that this has nothing to do with judicial records. There is a different statute that makes judicial records public. That's correct. Okay. So we're now talking about the class of information other than the two classes I've mentioned. And I then ended up, and I'd like you to add something to this if you can, uh, that really this is about, since getting information involves usually a benefit to the recipient, but sometimes harm to the person the information is about, that willing to run that harm and risk of harm is the interest in state good government. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if that's the interest, that's an interest that probably a state has the right, just as it has the right to say other people can't vote in state elections. If that's the interest, then I guess it could take reasonable measures related to that interest. All right. Now, that is the, the argument or the position that I would appreciate your addressing. Sure. Uh, you know, that, we don't deny that that's an interest that the state has. Um, but then you have to see whether the, the interest is reasonably furthered by the statute. And here you have a resource that is not finite, uh, and the statute allows the state to recoup its expenses. So nothing is lost to Virginians. There isn't any loss in transparency to Virginians by extending access to out-of-state data companies. But it's a cost for Virginia. Virginia has to take care of its own, and if it has to service FOIA requests, from all over, it's going to cost the state. It's going to have to hire people to do this. They're going to have to spend many hours going through these records. So the state uh, doesn't — it wants to conserve its resources for its own people. But, but there's no loss in resources, Justice Ginsburg, because the statute allows Virginia to fully recoup any administrative expenses. Counsel, they, but they having, just don't want out to, they, they don't want outlanders mucking around in, in, in Virginia government. It's perfectly okay for good old Virginians to do that, but they don't want outlanders to do it. Why, why is that unreasonable? Yeah, that, that is certainly their interest, but you've got to see whether the policy serves, serves, uh, you know, the interest. And, and this is a statute that's supposed to promote transparency. It actually makes, Council, it, makes it less transparent. There is underlying your argument sort of fundamental belief that you're entitled to relief, pardon the alliteration, simply because the statute discriminates between citizens and non-citizens. Is that your position? No, not at all. I mean — So if it's not, what are the two rights that you — or what rights are it that you're claiming have been violated? You say privileges and immunities. What's the privilege or immunity? It's the privilege or immunity of pursuing a common calling across state borders. So there's no dispute here that Mr. Hurlburt's common calling is, is gathering data. Um, in fact, those are the principal users of so uh, public a, records laws. Is this a uh, as-applied challenge? That's to, right. All right. So this That's is right. an as-applied challenge. Yes. So, so it's an as-applied challenge with respect to Mr. Hurlburt's common calling. There's no, there's no dispute that that is his common calling and that this law has the effect of completely cutting him off from 
pursuing his common calling in the Virginia market. And that 47 other — And we would be doing something very strange with this statute, because you would be saying, Herbert has a right to this because it's his business. But the statute, the character of this statute is it doesn't matter what you want the information for. But you're saying the out of, the instater, it doesn't matter. Out-of-stater, is it your argument that if this out-of-stater has a good reason for getting this and it's related to the out-of-stater business, so you're, you're changing the character of a FOIA statute, which is it doesn't matter what you want it for. Right. I mean, you would, you know, we would, we would ask that you rule that the statute is unconstitutional as applied to him, and then Virginia would have the choice about how to I, I'm having a problem, and I think it's Justice Ginsburg's problem, which is absent the statute. He can't demand that Virginia provide him th- with this information because that's how he wants to work, correct? So what's the added value that gives him a right to demand it merely because the statute exists? He doesn't have a right to the information. Well, he's, all he's asking for is information that's available in the public archives on equal terms with Virginians. Uh, in the same way that, that someone who — Yes, he has a very reasonable request, in my view. But the question isn't the reasonableness of his request. The question is, you know, whether they can do it. And the, the way that the work — the thing that's bothering me on the work part is this. Uh, it seems that the work is sort of tailored to the statute. <laughs> it's in this way. I, I have a job, and my job is to study election processes. And I write reports, and I find amazing things about differences among states there, truly amazing. And I say, you know, it would help me a lot if I was actually a voter in each of these states. That would help my job. It would lend authenticity, and I could learn things that I probably couldn't learn otherwise. Now, does that add anything to the argument? I mean, I don't think so. But it sounds a little bit like you're making that kind of argument. No. And, and, and they either do have the right or they don't. And I don't know that it helps that I, that I, that I say, well, I really want it for my work. Right. Well, but this is, this is a profession that has existed since the founding era. I mean, we've, you know, we've cited cases in our opening brief uh, of, of people hiring professionals to search the records for them before engaging in property transactions. By the late 19th century, you had an enormous industry that was designed to do this. So this isn't — Mr. Herbert isn't some, someone who's making up some profession. He's part of a very large industry that has done this for a very long time. And that industry, yes, like lawyers depend on courthouses or truckers depend on roads, uh, his industry depends on access to the public archives. And you know, it's true that, that now you have these modern public records laws, but I, th- I think Virginia's argument would be the same if you were just talking about can, can they bar the doors to the archives building? Can they bar the doors to the property records? There's no — I don't see any distinction in kind. Is this, is this your privileges and immunities argument or your dormant commerce clause argument? <laughs> you know, I think the logic of both arguments are similar, but I think it, it more, most clearly is illustrated in the privileges and immunities context. So where then it's not enough that this is a big deal. To your client, it has to be something that is essential to hold the country together as a national unit. And it seems to me it's a bit of a stretch to say somebody gathering records about commercial uh, under FOIA fits that description. I, I don't think it's a stretch at all, Justice uh, Chief Justice. Um, the, the aggregators of records make possible mortgage origination 
credit reporting, insurance adjustment. The, the economy, and you have a, an no, amicus but, brief. See, just to get into those, again, I think a lot of those examples, you, you, you do have access under other statutes. You talk about not, mortgage rules and all that. No, no, not well. to this kind of information. The, the information that Mr. Herbert is gathering, tax assessment information, is essential to, to mortgage origination and credit reporting. The people who hire him are large data companies, and the, the data industry brief explains the uses of this information. That, that information is essential to these activities. And Virginia, virtually alone among the states, is, is erecting this barrier to access um, that market uh, and, and reserving the right to access that market to only people who live in the state. And, and, you know, this would be no different if we're just talking about the archives that, that include all the information. That the, yes, it's true that Virginia has exempted uh, the title itself, but I don't see that the logic of their position um, uh, allows them to make that distinction. I mean, that's just a feature of their, of their statute. Uh, I, I, I'm still trying to tease out what your claim is. Let's suppose — Virginia passes a statute that says we'll let non-residents have access, but they have to pay all the costs. Non-residents don't. Would that satisfy you as valid? I think that would be a, a closer question, but I think that presents some problems as well. I mean, so in your hypothetical, it's free to the, the citizens of the state, but they're just passing the cost on to out-of-staters. And, you know, this, this court in cases like Toomer and Mullaney have said that at least, you know, where the state can show that the non-residents pose some unique evil, uh, that the, the state is entitled Why to pass just, the costs on. You just being cost them more. Right. That was Justice Ginsburg's point, which is every time you put in a request, you're costing them more money. Right. But, but that would be discriminating against non-citizens solely because they're non-citizens. So now if there's what? some particular You're reason, costing them more. Right. Well, that's, that's precisely the rationale that, that in Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court in Barnard versus Thorson, this court rejected. This, the Virgin Islands wanted to say, if we open up our bar to people from all over the country, it's going to increase the administrative resources. And this court said, no, that's not a good enough reason. That's just discriminating on the basis of citizenship. But if, for example, uh, the state could show that there was, uh, you know, there were shipping costs that were uniquely posed by non-residents and they wanted to assess a $5 shipping fee for all non-residents, that might be uh, permissible. Um, and if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve. Thank you, Counsel. General Getchell. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The I'm not sure how you save administrative cost under this statute. They could go to any Virginia resident, it's not illegal, and probably will. It'll cost them something more, but not you, and get the very same information. So how do you justify this discrimination? Because it's so easily the administrative cost is going to be imposed anyway. I uh, would, would suggest that the purpose of the statute, which is political, not commercial, um, left the state uh, with the position that it was going to subsidize with tax dollars uh, this function, because we can't recover our overhead. We can over, only recover the actual cost. So you want to get more businesses to Virginia citizens who will now charge out-of-state residents money to process their FOIA requests? No, Your Honor. Um, I don't think anybody was thinking about businesses of any sort. I think they were saying that we have a political hygiene statute 
They were very much the fad. It happened in, in my lifetime, too. I remember when they were adopted. Nobody thought they were commercial in nature. And, and I do want to, want to um, repel the notion that there is even substantial discrimination in this case, because Mr. Hurlburt, in his uh, uh, admission that this is an as-applied challenge, uh, has a difficulty with uh, substantial equality of access, because it turns out uh, that Mr. Hurlburt, in his reply brief, when he teed up the 1786 statute, which does give access, did give access, um, he focused his argument on that statute. And if you run that statute, you will find that uh, between 1830, I mean, 1813 and 1840 uh, that you did not have general access. They went back to having to show a, a particular interest. But that eight, from 1840-41 until today, uh, through the codes of 1819 and, and uh, up until uh, the present code, Section 17.1208, he has the right of access to tax assessment records. So the, if I understood your answer to Justice Sotomayor, the only reason you don't let out-of-staters get these records is because of the added overhead costs? No, Your Honor. It's just not part of the, the interest the State was trying to serve. The State — No, I know. I, but, but why — so why don't you do it anyway? It's just, it's just as I asked your friend, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. It doesn't seem like that big a deal for you either. If you can recoup overhead costs uh, from people who request, and I assume you'd be able to, no. why, why don't other people have it? People from West Virginia may have an interest in how Virginia government operates, too. And, and it, it, again, if it, what cost is there to you other than overhead? You don't want to keep how Virginia government operates quiet from outsiders when you let citizens get the access, do you? The, uh, we are here to defend um, the decisions of the two lower courts uh, that impl- apply existing doctrine. And under existing doctrine, only if we discover that this is a fundamental right do I have to justify? Well, that's the, under the, the privileges of the and, privileges and immunities argument. That's correct. Okay, but what about the dormant commerce? Clause? Under the dormant commerce clause, we would first have to have a regulation of commerce that's discriminatory, and I would say that, a, that this is a, a governmental function. I, I would say that, that. No, I know. I understand your argument. I'm just asking you, why bother? I mean, what, what, what's the? And that's certainly pertinent to some of the commerce clause analysis. And I haven't heard anything other than it, the overhead cost, and I think you can recoup that from the requesters. Uh, I cannot, Your Honor. Why not? Mr. Chief Justice, uh, the statute says I cannot recoup the cost of maintaining and generating the database, which is by definition uh, overhead. I well, cannot. you've got to maintain and generate the database anyway for Virginia citizens who are going to ask for it. This is not an added cost. It's an added cost if you have to hire an additional person to handle, as far as I can tell, just these two people. It's an added burden, too. It's not all. The the Virginia citizens pay for that database, right? They do. This is a a And the outstaters don't pay for the database. This is a taxpayer-subsidized system. And 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 besides, do do you — is it the law that that the state of Virginia cannot do anything that's pointless? Only only the federal government can do stuff that's pointless? (laughs) 
The, uh, there is a bur- there is a, a non-financial burden as well because as one who is subject to uh, to FOIA requests, um, we have a finite number of officials and employees who have to address these things. And you they- keep making that argument, but you don't stop residents from asking for the information from someone else. I mean, that's one of the points of your law, which is they can hire a Virginia resident to get it for them. Most of the big people are doing that already. So you're not saving any money if they can get the information simply by paying someone in Virginia to get it for them. In, in fact, the state of Virginia has made the policy decision to give this information to its citizens and not to inquire behind it to see whether or not somebody's doing it for an out-of-stater. And or even for commercial purposes. Don't you think if, if those who created these government-in-the-sunshine laws could have uh, drafted them in such a way that inquiries for commercial purposes would not be allowed, but only those inquiries that are intended to look into the workings of state government and produce government in the sunshine, don't you think that they probably would have excluded commercial inquiries if they could? Um, but you can't tell which ones are commercial and which aren't. It's and we don't. And, and we don't try. We have a policy decision that we want to have a very simple system that allows our citizens to make uh, inquiries without a demonstrated uh, uh, need or cause, because we want there to be sunshine. It's no more complicated a system if you let out-of-staters have access to it. You say we want a simple system. It's going to be the same system whether you win or lose. The thing that is of, of great concern, why do we care, why do we bother, uh, is the principle that when a government is providing a taxpayer-subsidized service of recent origin to its citizens, that it does not have to explain its choice either under the Privileges and Immunities Clause or under the Dormant Commerce Clause. It is very important that we not find ourselves with lawsuits that say, services, voluntary services, are, in fact, things that now have to be justified under those two provisions of the Constitution. Well, that's, that's where he comes in with his argument, because I, I agree. You, can, you don't have, let's say, the most fabulous reason for doing this, but you have a reason. And, and, and uh, so the question is, does it have to be better than that? And, and uh, uh, they're saying yes, and I, as I heard it, uh, this what I would characterize as a strong argument, sort of first blush strikes me as a stronger argument, uh, is that, look, if we go back into history, out-of-state uh, real estate people could always get information about property. Let's say they had a client who wanted to buy it. Now, you've protected that. But in today's world, it's important that we get statistics about this, too, because our economy is national. If we understand how states are taxing their real estate, we will know to what extent they increase the value, to what extent they increase the rate, to what extent they really get the money they're supposed to, to what extent they might get money or not get money in the future. And all those things are nationally important so that people can put them together and make better than we have done in the past predictions about what is likely to happen to states and hence the national economy. All right? That's, that's the kind of argument he's making. 
And he says, so therefore, there is a national interest in the flow of this information. And that means you have to have a better than mm-hmm uh, kind of rationale. That's, that's what he's saying, I think. But it's very difficult for Mr. Hurlburt to make that uh, uh, fairly expansive argument, mm-hmm. because it turns well, out Well, to be fair, I, I was sort of expanding it. <laughs> but in, in point of fact, because he is entitled uh, to the uh, tax assessment data in the clerk's office, in the case of Henrico County, where he went, you go in the same building, and if you're Mr. Hurlburt, you turn in one direction, you go to the clerk's office. And if somebody in uh, Virginia wants to, for whatever reason, get it from the tax assessor's book instead of from the clerk's book, you turn in the other direction. But you don't deny that, in general, this does affect out-of-state data collectors, people who are engaged in the kind of business that Justice Breyer was talking about. Is that right? I have no idea uh, in this record, because we were on summary judgment, cross motions for summary judgment, and the district court and the court of appeals both in our judgment correctly ruled that there's a two-step inquiry. And the first step is whether or not there is a fundamental right. And in the absence of a — It's only in his privileges and immunities claim. Well, he claims that the Dormant Commerce Clause has been affected because he reads the statute saying only Virginia recording companies have access. Out-of-state can't. And it's a fair reading of the statute. It only permits Virginia residents, which include commercial and non-commercial, to access the information. So assume, hypothetically, that the statute reads only Virginia commercial businesses have access to this information. Um, if, if, in fact, you want to rewrite the statute to uh, subject to it to attack, um, obviously, that would then raise questions about a, a non-governmental protectionist intent. But that's not the way this statute was written. It's not how it was crafted. It is, has nothing to do with commerce. Well, that, that's the question I'm, I'm raising the best argument for your right. adversary, okay? Um, because we could call it a direct, he calls it direct discrimination, because commercial businesses are being permitted in Virginia, but not non-commercial. You say it's indirect. How do we draw the line between direct and indirect when the bottom line consequence is the same? Um, I would I would have about three answers to that. The, the first the first one is that we don't trigger the dormant commerce clause analysis unless we are exercising the police power of the state to regulate commerce. And that means that it doesn't means that not every statute a state passes triggers uh, 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 inquiry, even if it has an indirect effect on commerce. Whereas here uh, we have a, a statute that has a solely political intent. Um, the fact that that now that uh, uh, the Amici want to tell us about this great burgeoning uh, enterprise, uh, they they want the court to. Take that are, 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 you, are you telling us that, that, that there are simply no commercial uh, consequences to this statute at all, that Virginians find this to be of no commercial value in I, any instance? I am totally agnostic on this record because we don't have any data on well, that. Well, you were the one with some rejudgment. Now, maybe, maybe they didn't come forward with the information, uh, but we interpret summary judgment in, in favor of, of, of the losing party, but, 
and you're, 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 so you say you're totally agnostic. I'm concerned that uh, you're preventing them by the summary judgment from showing uh, that there, even with Virginians, there's a commercial value frequently to this information. It's not just on, on this on this record. On this record, the position that was accepted by the two courts below, entirely in accordance with this court's existing doctrine, was the first inquiry under privileges and immunities was whether there was a fundamental right. If there if there is not, then we make no further inquiry. Well, let's talk about the, let's talk about the commerce clause. Under you're the, saying you're agnostic. You have no idea whether or not. Uh, there might be some commercial value to this information. I, I would think as an officer of the state of Virginia, or as a matter of judicial notice, we could, we could take notice that there is. Well, I'm saying under, under the, this record, th- that never came up, nor should it have come up, because what the Court said on dormant commerce clause, both of the courts below, was this is not a regulation of commerce. Uh, it is a government I mean, act. You're saying that it's no more necessary for you to show that there's no commercial value uh, to allowing out-of-staters to do this, then it is necessary for you to show that there is no commercial value to your not allowing out-of-staters to hunt deer in Virginia. Uh, you say that uh, it's up to Virginia. Correct, Your Honor. Whether, whether out-of-staters can hunt Virginia game. And it's up to Virginia whether out-of-staters can have access to uh, the state's records that they have no interest in uh, personally uh, under under this law, it seems to me perfectly logical. Well, but remember, they do, they do have access to these this information, both Hurlburt and uh, McBurney. Um, of, of course, that assumes the question as to whether or not there is a general commercial interest in these in these in these documents. And you say, oh, you're agnostic. At well, least that means you're open to the possibility that there might be a commercial interest. Well, here, here's the problem in this case, is because I think that it, we are not at, at first-tier uh, analysis, because there's no regulation of commerce that's discriminatory. I didn't understand. If, if that's your argument, I, I reject it as Justice Kennedy does. I, I didn't understand you to be arguing that there is no commercial value. I, you, I'm, I'm trying to explain why it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, it doesn't <laughs> It doesn't matter because if, if, if on the threshold inquiry we don't have a, a discriminatory regulation of commerce but just an ordinary governmental function, then only Pike Church analysis could possibly well, you, care. Well, you can't say discriminatory regulation. What about a tax? I mean, you can't tax That's discriminatorily, and I wouldn't call taxation in and of itself a regulation of commerce, would you? Um, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, um, it has been — taxes have been found to be both violations of privileges and immunities uh, and dormant commerce clause, where they were, there was unequal taxation of commerce. Even, uh, though it's, even though it's not a regulation of commerce. Okay. Well, I, I — Okay. I apologize that I I, I chose a word that is not as apt as it should have been, but a regulation or taxation centering around commerce intended to affect uh, and and actually affecting commerce, it just — this just isn't that kind of activity. General, can I just uh, indulge me with a hypothetical? Suppose that the background for these statutes was different. The statutes were the same, but in addition to talking about people's right to know about how their government works — 
But people spend a lot of time also talking about uh, the economic benefits of a free flow of information in our country. Would that, if, if that were true, I, I want to put myself on record as not remembering when these statutes were passed, you know? <laughs> but if that were true, would this case be different, or would you still be up here saying the same thing? If, if, I, had, if I had a statute which on its face dealt with, uh, with commerce, uh, the, the statute, it does exactly the same thing. I'm just suggesting that there might be two interests behind the statute. One is about knowing the way your government operates, and the other is about free flows of information in our economy. And if both of those things had gone into the mix to create statutes of this kind, would you be up here saying the same thing or not? I, I would be saying something at least slightly different if I had different facts that I had to deal with. But I think in principle I would be arguing the power of the state to pass this kind of act without having to uh, uh, submit to uh, dormant commerce clause, uh, at least first-tier dormant commerce clause analysis. What else, what else can Virginia do besides um, – I don't know if there are elves in Virginia, but besides to, to reserve for its own – for its own people. You say this is good government in Virginia is for Virginians. Uh, big game hunting, scarce resource can be reserved to, for in-state people. What else can Virginia do? Well, v- Virginia can, can do things uh, uh, including have in-state tuition. Uh, it can have uh, – um, uh, it can subsidize its own uh, uh, businesses either – uh, by training programs or even by uh, uh, other uh, uh, direct subsidy from the public fisc. Um, it uh, limits welfare payments uh, to residents of the Commonwealth. When the Commonwealth is just acting as a government um, and not uh, as a regulator or taxer of interstate commerce, it has uh, the status of a co-equal sovereign that in its own sphere is allowed to do its own policy choices. I think the thing, General, that I was trying to get at was it seems to me you have a very good case that these statutes were, were, were meant for a different purpose. But in fact, it seems as though uh, your friends there have a good case that these statutes have been taken over to a large extent across the country by economic enterprises doing economic things. And at that point in time, Virginia's, and, you know, you're only one of two states uh, Virginia's maintenance of, of this kind of no, it's Virginians, Vir, you know, Virginia information for Virginians looks very different from what it might have looked uh, like when the statute was originally passed. Uh, if, if we were going to say, if you were going to say that, that this is an inquiry that needs to be made under the Commerce Clause, this would be a particularly poor vehicle for doing it because um, the Fourth Circuit held that the Pike analysis of the district court was not appealed, and therefore this case could not be sent back on remand to develop a burden analysis of a record but, for But the, the pike, pike is not relevant here. Pike involves this with the Southern Pacific versus Arizona, uh, the, 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 where, where there were melons, where there were melons. Uh, and Arizona wanted to make sure that you had labels and packing of the melons in Arizona. That was that was discriminatory against uh, against interstate against interstate commerce. 
That's not that's not dormant commerce clause, but that is discrimination, and there's discrimination here. Well, there's there's discrimination only in the sense that we discriminate against a, a people who we don't let vote because they don't live in the Commonwealth as well. I mean, we this statute has a function; it's a legitimate function. Well, and and it's, you, you, you could say the same thing. We don't discriminate against uh, Californians who want to come and pack their melons in Arizona. Well, I would say that, that whether or not somebody can deal with an item in commerce um, is, is raises commerce clause questions. And uh, just like in Reno versus Condon, where the state of South Carolina was choosing to take its records and sell them into the stream of commerce, there the court held that, that they thereby became a thing in commerce. The records of the tax assessor of the county of Henrico, uh, which are uh, available through the clerk's office to Mr. Hurlburt, are not things or persons in commerce, nor are they instrumentalities. It, it, it would surprise me if an out-of-state investor who was thinking of putting a large plant in Virginia had absolutely no interest in Virginia's tax policies. But they're available. They're publicly available. They're just not available through this adjunct service. All, all FOIA is is a device where you don't have to go and look. There's always been public access for these, these records. So, so suppose, you mean, I think they have an argument. Say, so, of course, this information would be useful for gathering national statistics and helping the national economy. I, I think that's true. Uh, on the other hand, you say, well, but look, there must be something left that states can reserve to their own citizens. There must be something. They can't protect their own commerce. That's clear. They can't uh, uh, discriminate against people who want to come in and live here. That's clear. Uh, they can't do this and that and the other thing. But, gee, there must be something. I mean, can't they reserve at least their, 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 their beaches for their own citizens? No. Parking here, their beaches? Well, maybe. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe deer. And if not this, what? That's the end. Okay? So that's basically what you're saying. This is just an interest in trying to find out how state institutions work. And the, the voters have the main interest there, and this is other. So you say the other one's attenuated but not non-existent. He says the other's important, though he recognizes states should be able to do something. So if you were me, how would you decide? How would you choose? What's the standard? Because you know the, the Privileges and Immunities Clause is, is considerably opaque, and there are very few cases on it. And uh, so what, what, how would you tell me uh, to, to, to resolve that, that tension, because there is a tension. I, I think there, that, that the important policy issue in this case for us is precisely as you articulated. There, there is residual sovereign power in the state to act, mm-hmm. and we have to violate the Constitution clearly before we lose that authority. And under existing uh, um, privileges and immunities uh, doctrine, the privileges and immunities are are few. They're enu- they have been enumerated in the courts. They are similar in character, having to do with commerce, not governmental action. So I would say you would not extend privileges and immunities. We're so, talking about state-owned documents, aren't we? Yes, Your Honor. There's not much that's as, as, as close to the sovereignty of the state as the possession and right to exclude people from its own records and its own documents, right? I agree. Uh, so the, 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 the issue is, can the state uh, allow 
its own citizens for purposes of seeing that the government is, is being run on the up and up have access to those documents without letting the whole world. Yes, Your Honor, that is our position. So why doesn't the Dormant Commerce Clause affect the hypothetical I laid out? Because directly this permits Virginia commercial businesses to get something that out-of-staters can't. The state is putting this instrument into commerce. You say, I don't know that. But make the assumption that we think the record's clear enough on that point. I know you want to fight me on that, but it's hard. It's a fight with no legs, because you have to know that commercial enterprises in Virginia seek these records. I'm I'm arguing that, of course, I think we say in our brief that that, uh, they can be put into commerce. They are put into commerce, um, but we don't put them into commerce. And we have, uh, in the architecture of our bill, our act, has nothing to do with commerce. And if a state can't deal with — Tell us under our jurisprudence, the Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence, and I have some colleagues who who don't believe it should exist. (laughs) Take that argument out. Why is this not a Dormant Commerce Clause case? Because it is not an exercise of the state police power to regulate commerce. The documents in the in the uh, tax assessor's office of the county of Henrico are not things or persons in commerce, nor are they channels or instrumentalities of commerce. They are just the records of the sovereign, which we will allow our citizens to obtain. Unless the court has further questions, I. I think this argument has been developed uh, from our standpoint. Thank you, General. Uh, Mr. Gupta, you have uh, three minutes remaining. Thank you. Just a few quick points. Uh, First, I just want to clear up on the statute. I want to make it clear that this statute does allow the State to fully recoup its costs, including administrative costs, and the State hasn't said otherwise. And secondly, the suggestion has been made — Excuse me. I I think what he's saying is you, you don't have to pay the costs of developing and maintaining those records, which costs are paid by the citizens of Virginia, which gives them an additional interest in being able to get to those documents. You, you, you don't claim that, that, that you pay for the development and the maintenance of those records. You just pay for the incremental cost of giving it to you, right? That, that's right, Justice Scalia. And Virginians pay for all the rest. That, that's right, Justice Scalia, and that's true of other things like roads and courthouses. And I think this gets to — Justice Breyer asked for a test to try to di- dis, uh, differentiate this from other services. I'd like to try to provide one. Um, I think at least where you've got a function that's reserved to the state, only the state can do it. Only the state can run the archives. It's necessary as a channel to, to commerce. And in the, in the modern economy, this is as much part of the information infrastructure as transportation is like courthouses, like archives, like roads. It would not stretch limited resources. It would not cost the state additional money. And it would not jeopardize important local traditions or institutions. And I think you can feel comfortable. You you switched now to, and you were led there, but you switched to the Dormant Commerce Clause. What about your other client, McBurney? He doesn't have any Dormant Commerce Clause claim. Right. I I think the test I just laid out would work for both clauses. It's a limiting principle on the justification side. But but that's right. Um, Mr. McBurney does not have a dormant commerce clause claim. His claim is based on um, equal access to proceedings. He 
uh, wanted to get recovery of child support that he was owed. So he is a creditor seeking to pursue a debt on equal terms with people in the state of Virginia. And the state set up a process as one step along the way to court. You go to the agency. You ask the agency to enforce. The, the agency has unique enforcement tools. It can suspend uh, someone's driver's license, for example. It can, it can uh, intercept income tax refunds, and it can go to court on your behalf. And all he's asking for is the rules of the game. He wants to know what procedures apply to that process. And at least where a, an agency has a process that directly affects a non-stater in the pocketbook, uh, all we're saying is that uh, equal access to the proceedings means equal access to the information governing those proceedings. Um, and finally, I'd just like to close by saying that, you know, what I don't think we heard on the justification side from the State was really any justification, because the State can recoup its costs. And so they're not saying that this will cost them anything more, which was the only justification they pressed in, in the courts below. And so they are left with the position that they can discriminate uh, simply because they think they can. And if you look at the Privileges and Immunities Clause, it sits right next to the Full Faith and Credit Clause, which indicates, if anything, that the framers thought that the movement of public records across state lines was important to interstate comedy. They changed the Articles of Confederation version, which did not include public records. It only referred to judicial records. They added a mention of judicial record, uh, non-judicial records and saw that that was important to, to comedy across state lines. But, but their position is about the step before that. It's about whether you get the records in the first place. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.